Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm, jo- I'm Imogen Bakra, European rate strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale, Theo Chapsalis, and Brian Dangerfield. Before getting into the discussion today, I just wanted to quickly remind you to hit the subscribe button so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they become available. And another reminder from me that if you have any questions that you would like me to ask any of our market specialists, then please send them in to bondcast at natwest.com. All right, guys, let's get into this week's episode. I'm very excited when I started uh, speaking just then because I realized it's the first episode in, I don't know, probably the last four weeks where it's not going to focus solely on central bank speak and what we've had. And we can talk about all the other exciting things that have been going on while we've been distracted by central bankers. So I'm going to start with you, Giles, because I think one kind of big theme that perhaps is coming up well, certainly coming up in the UK because of the rise in case rates, but perhaps as markets are focusing on it a little bit more because there's not much else going on. But um, we're seeing, you know, a, a kind of surge in cases in the UK and of COVID at the moment. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, in Europe, we're starting to worry whether we're just kind of looking into the future and, and Europe is really just two weeks behind what we're seeing in the UK. Um, so do you think that is the case or are you confident that this is kind of a UK only thing and also that the vaccine is is really helping break that link between cases and and hospitalizations and deaths? Yeah well it seems like it's either central banks or it's COVID doesn't it so and I I guess that now you know we're getting into the summer then you know people are naturally watching this very carefully not just because they're worried about markets but also they're worried about things like their summer holidays you know it it does seem like the um, uh, the bar's pretty high for actually uh, pushing back on the sort of nineteenth of, of July sort of you know, full reopening in, in the UK. But you now the the case rates, as you say, have been increasing very very quickly. So we did look um, pretty carefully this week at um, you know, to what extent the the link between cases, uh, well, I mean, infections and hospitalizations and ultimately, of course, uh, mortality um, has been broken. And I think overall, we were very, very encouraged by what we saw. Um, you know, it's, we, we have quite a lot of regional data and you know, so we can drill into, you know, okay, so what are the dynamics in the, sort of the areas where the problem emerged earliest, um, in particular, the Northwest. And you can see that uh, compared to the last time we saw case rates of a similar magnitude, where and of course, you know, considering the normal sorts of lags that you would expect um, between you know, infections and then you know, people actually um, actually having to go to hospital. Now it looks like we are down to perhaps hospitalization rate of maybe a tenth of what we're, of where we were before. And not only that, but fortunately, the number of people ultimately dying in uh, from you know, so, so, so the the, um, the proportion of people who have gone who are going to hospital, who uh, who who then who, who then die, is significantly lower as well. And so, of course, you know, 
I mean, I, I, I dare say that the <laughs> that a, a, a longer, more careful look at this um, you know, might come up, come up with something you know some, somewhat different. But very, very broadly, just to give you an idea, you know, it seems like we were talking about something like one third of um, of, of, of hospital case, of cases that were serious enough to result in a hospitalization, um, ultimately resulting in a death about uh, four months ago. Okay, that now seems to be something like one in 20. And so, you know, that, you know, that doesn't mean, of course, that you know, anybody should be complacent about any of this, but it does seem that vaccinations have really, really made a significant difference. Okay, um, and so does that mean that we're more optimistic? Yeah, of course, of course it does. And in the European context, um, you know, I'll just say, you know, having just looked at the, uh, the the monitor that we that we publish weekly, <clears throat> you know, there really are, you know, the caseload in Europe, in continental Europe, has diminished to next to nothing. Okay, so although inevitably it seems like the Delta variant will take over and you know, probably emerge as much more of a problem um, over the coming weeks. It seems like continental Europe has some time to play with here. So you know, it, I, I don't think that this is going to, to develop as a, as a serious problem, most likely in you know, less than sort of four or five weeks. And of course, you know, we know that Europe is behind the UK in its vaccination program, but it's not that far behind. You know, it's probably something like a month, um, you know, realistically. And so I think, you know, if, you know, for exactly the same reasons that we're more optimistic about the way that this is going to develop in the UK, I think we should be relatively optimistic about the Euro area as well. Now, none of that's to say that, you know, reopening and you know, sort of international travel is not going to be a problem. Um, you know, I think that that is something which yeah, uh, for, uh, today looks pretty, um, pretty uncertain still, I'd say. All right, I'll hold off on booking my summer holiday still. <laughs> I think that last point you make there about um, vaccines in Europe is quite important because everyone made a, a big song and dance about how slow the Europeans were to start their vaccination program but actually I'm not sure everyone has picked up on the fact that it's actually picked up really really quite quickly in the kind of Q2 and, and continued and Europe is now vaccinating at a faster pace than the UK is um, and part of that is because the UK has slowed down its efforts but um, it, it won't take long like you say for Europe to catch up. So the other thing I wanted to ask you then, Giles, because we touched on this last week in the podcast about how, um, you know, we expected that the next few weeks could be quite quiet, but actually August, we could see a pickup and vol again. You know, typically August isn't as quiet as people think. Uh, and also we have a huge amount of, of risk events, which I think we kind of listed off last week, starting at the end of August and then heading into September. But if we're right that July, you know, kind of COVID concerns aside, is going to be quite quiet, how should we be thinking about market moves or how should we be best positioned for that, uh, a quiet July? Is there any kind of trades that, that stand out to you? Well, yeah, I mean, listen, it, it really does look like July um, is is likely to be a little bit dull. I mean, the seasonals all, you know, I mean, weak signals, though they are, they all point in that direction. 
from our client conversations and the feedback that we that we get from everyone else in the in, in the bank that have have client relationships you know the uh, the overwhelming um sense is that there's just not a lot of conviction and you know, positioning overall is, is, is relatively is, is relatively light as well and so that just supports this idea that you know we're probably not looking for fireworks in in july uh, although you know that i mean obviously anything can 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 happen in markets um you know i think just to answer your your question about what we should be doing i mean you know for for me this is you know just no, uh, I mean a continuation of of themes that we've been on for for quite a while. So I think curve steepeners, I think country spreads tend to do quite well. One of the ones that we flagged last week was was France, which has underperformed over the course of the year, tends to do, do quite well in July. Uh, you know, it's a, seen as a bit of a safe carry trade. If anything, the positioning is probably against France, not um, no, not not with it. And um, now we no, we just had. Well, we've got some supply this week. I mean, and we just had the uh, regional elections. It seems like everything is pointing in the right direction there. So it's not a particularly exciting trade, but it, and I think it's a good one. But you know, I think maybe not for today because I've spoken quite a lot. But um, you know, maybe for for next week we should be really focusing on the run-in for the from September to the to the end of the year, where we've got you know, real back-to-back of uh, of risk events. And you know, I definitely think that that will be um, you know, that 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 that's going to make. August potentially interesting, and you know, I think if we're talking about re-engaging with some of our longer-term themes, in particular the the bearish Bund view, you know that's really what that's going to be about. Like that, looking listeners to come back for next week. <laughs> All right, I'll take you up on on that topic next week then, because I think you're right that that's definitely going to be, or well, there's definitely going to be a lot to focus on come September. Um, so moving over to the US then, because we've talked a lot in the last few weeks about um, about central bank policy, but one thing we haven't discussed so much is, is fiscal policy. And we had a bit of a breakthrough since we recorded the podcast last week that looks like um, a bipartisan deal might be possible. Um, so Brian, could you just, I guess, before we get into any kind of in more in-depth questions, can you just give us an overview of, of the state of play and, and where we're at in terms of that deal at the moment in the US? Absolutely, and thank you very much for having me on the uh, on the podcast. Um, so last week there was a breakthrough um, in bipartisan negotiations. Um, you know there had been on and off discussions between the president and Republicans. Uh, we had uh, optimistic commentary. We had a uh, we had a breakdown at one point, uh, but we've now had a breakthrough. So where are we? Um, the number you will see in the media is this is an over $1 trillion deal. Um, but what's probably more uh, realistic is that this is amounting to $579 billion in new spending over five years, this bipartisan proposal. Now, this is a proposal not yet written into a law. And so one of the important things to take away from this proposal is that the pay-fors are not fully decided yet. And so, you know, there was a proposal for, say, indexing the gas, ta- uh, excuse me, um, uh, indexing the gas tax to inflation. So raising the gas tax, that was something that was in the original plan that the president asked to be removed. That apparently is going to get replaced. And so as this goes from proposal into written law, you know, there's possibilities for some, you know, some things in the, the package to come in that were not in the original 
proposal. But I think if you step back and sort of close your eyes and think about what this deal is, it is a physical infrastructure focused plan that's significantly smaller than the president had hoped, 579 billion in new spending as opposed to the 2.3 trillion he initially came out with. And it has no new tax increases and no change in what we call human infrastructure, social infrastructure. If you close your eyes and take a step back, that's really sounds like it's the Republican plan. It sounds more like a plan that you know former President Trump would be endorsing rather than President Biden. And so um, Biden really negotiated, I would say, in the direction of Republicans in order to get this deal um, to this point. And I think the fact that he was willing to agree to this proposal is really indicative that you know Democrats have more uh, coming down the line. And you know this could really create some complications, the fact that there's sort of we're on sort of two tracks right now. There's a bipartisan deal that we had a deal struck on. And then there's also the possibility of a partisan package. And that's something that really makes this deal quite fragile because both sides of this deal are actually quite, uh, uh, both sides I would say are almost uh, angry at the result. And so, you know, bipartisanship is working when both sides are not particularly happy. So we'll see where it goes from there, but there are still complications for the deal. What kind of a timeline would we be looking at here, I guess, first of all, for the bipartisan deal, um, and then perhaps for a, some any kind of reconciliation bill, which might include, you know, uh, the rest of Biden's priorities that, that haven't been included in this deal? So the timeline is really important because it really comes down to, you know, uh, this is what could still make or break the bipartisan package. So you have two factions, right? You have the Republican Party, who does not want tax increases, who does not want social infrastructure. And then you have progressive Democrats. And this includes you know, Nancy Pelosi, Char uh, Chuck Schumer, the leadership of the Democratic Party in Congress, who basically say, we're not going to pass the bipartisan package unless we also have a shot at our reconciliation bill at the same time. So this creates a problem, right? Because the Democrats don't want to act unless on the Republican plan, unless they get their own reconciliation bill. But then on the other side, you have Republicans like Mitch McConnell and Jerry Moran is one of the members of this bipartisan uh, negotiating group who say, if you guys are just gonna pass all the stuff we negotiated out in a reconciliation bill, then you can forget having our support on this bipartisan package. What's the point of bipartisanship if you're just gonna go your own way anyway? You know, it's, it's stunning to me that they would allow uh, that Republicans would work hard to negotiate out tax increases and simply just, you know, lay down and let them get passed in a reconciliation bill and then also allow their uh, their own bipartisan package to get done. And so sequencing really does matter. I think it's almost certainly easier to get the bipartisan plan done. Um, I think if we're thinking about where the president stands on this, he's going to be the most important player because if he favors the Pelosi-Schumer angle, that could collapse the entire bipartisan deal. If he seems to favor the bipartisan side, which comments over, um, uh, over the past weekend suggest that he does, then maybe he'd be more willing to take up the, part of, uh, the bipartisan deal first, the $579 billion, the smaller plan. So if they can get that deal done first and basically say, hey, we're not gonna do the reconciliation bill, sort of convince Republicans they aren't gonna do it, but then turn around and do the reconciliation bill. I think what's more likely is you get the bipartisan bill acted on first. In terms of timing, if you get both, if you have to do both at the same time, feels like late July before the August recess feels a bit aggressive for that. 
we're talking about just the bipartisan deal, just the negotiated package, that feels like it's more likely to be a July story with the reconciliation bill pushing after the August recess until September really at the earliest. And so the sequencing really does matter. The Democrats want both bills done at the same time. That means they might try and rush both bills into this month. I think if they go that path, it's more likely it drifts later just because the partisan bill is so large. I think if they go the first bill, the bipartisan bill first, that feels like it could get done before the August recess. So that really feels like a July story. Okay, so if we're thinking about potentially that coming in July, um, and you know, I know it's not huge, but it's still, um, you know, 580 billion or 579, which particularly from someone who's looked at, you know, the European Recovery Fund, uh, and we just have 750 billion, having an additional 580 feels like a lot. Um, and that could come before the kind of crucial September Fed meeting. Does this change anything for the Fed? Do you think it, uh, this is kind of feeding into their discussions and their narrative at all? Or is it almost too small at this point that it wouldn't really shift the needle for them? Well, I think it certainly will impact the Fed, perhaps more over the medium term than over the intermediate term. Because when we think about what this bill is, as you mentioned, it is substantial. But when you compare it to the COVID-19 recovery bill from earlier this year, the relief package, uh, it's quite small and it's also very spread out. So um, 580 billion of new spending over five years amounts to about 115 billion uh, per year. Compare that to the bill just passed from earlier in the year when roughly you know, uh, over a trillion was allocated and spent in the first year. So clearly a more longer term and smaller package. Um, and our assumption is that even if the bill gets passed in July, that money's not gonna begin to be spent really until 2022. So in terms of immediate term impact, is this something that's gonna really be a game changer as we think about the next month or two? Probably not. That being said, we have a Fed right now that is increasingly confident, growing more confident in the recovery and having a deal of any kind on the infrastructure front, it's probably only gonna increase that confidence going forward. So does that change the timing of the taper conversation? Maybe not, especially not if a single dime is going to be spent during the run up to that conversation. But if you think about the Fed's tightening cycle, how they feel about the pace of rundown of taper, those things are almost certainly gonna be influenced by the possibility of additional fiscal support. And you know, as we think about Fiscal and monetary, you always have those two sides of the coin. If monetary is doing more, fiscal has to do less and vice versa. Really, the vice versa matters here. If the fiscal is doing more of the heavy lifting, monetary can step back a little bit from the ultra aggressive pace uh, that they've been. And so it certainly does matter. Will it make a big difference for, say, the July FOMC? From a confidence perspective, it certainly will have an impact. Fed probably sounds a bit more confident, but maybe not from a delivered growth perspective. We know they care about the jobs numbers and the inflation numbers. We know they're a data-driven Fed. And so this isn't going to affect one or two, the, the next coming months of employment data, which will certainly be important. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks, Brian. So over to you then, Theo, because I think they've been quite, well, relatively bigger picture conversations, I guess, in, in Europe and the US today. But actually, on the UK side, um, I guess, given that we've already discussed the kind of COVID themes, the, the second important themes are um, the technical flows that are coming up. You know, we're, we're at the end of June now, or today when we're recording this, <laughs> I'm sure when it will 
released. It will be the beginning of July. Um, and so we're starting to look ahead at what the kind of what these events are coming up in July, which, which could be quite important from a technical perspective in the UK. So first of all, it's an important month for coupons. Um, so can you just tell us about what's going on there and what, what's going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first of all, what we find in the UK market is that really investors focus on one theme at a time. And um, COVID was more of a theme early in the year. Uh, right now in the UK, UK investors to a large extent do believe that there is a breakup between you know, uh, hospitalizations and, and uh, cases of COVID. So COVID does not matter so much. Last week, it was all about the BOE. Right now, the market starts to think really about flows. So what is coming, what is lying ahead of us? So coupons, the point that you've mentioned, is going to be crucial because um, we expect around 2.3 billion of coupons to be paid on the 22nd of July. So this bonds go extive around the 13th, 14th of July. And the important part is not just the outright number. The important part is that these coupons come from really back in guilds. So to the extent that those coupons are reinvested back into guilds, we talk about four and a half million basis point of a coupon effect, which is the biggest that you have during the financial year. So it is particularly market, it can be particularly market moving during a time of the year when uh, in general, there is a tranquility so any additional flow can matter. Okay, and then the second thing I wanted to ask was that I understand, well, I understand from reading your pieces <laughs> that um, it's gonna be a big month for index extensions. Is that going to matter at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think index extensions are uh, what can make this particularly exciting. So it's uh, Giles, considers uh, July to be a boring month. Maybe it is a less exciting month in the Euro area, but for us, it's going to be very, very exciting. Why that? Well, we looked at three, uh, three different indices. We looked at uh, sub five-year guild indices, then at five-year plus guild indices and at one-year plus guild indices. And all those indices, all the three, they will experience an index extension. So first, it is a specific five-year bond that falls out of the five-year plus bucket. So basically the average ended up having longer dated bonds, hence the extension. Second, it's a sub five year that ends up with a fairly long bond. So from the 5.1, it falls and becomes a say 4.9 year bond. So that pulls the average of the index longer and the one year index as well extends. So to give you an idea and to, and, and, and to provide some numbers, we do expect the, um, we do expect the one-year plus index to, uh, to increase by around 0.19. We do expect the five-year plus index to extend by 0.39. So we talk about uh, significant numbers. Usually uh, it's in the 0.0 something. And we do expect the five-year, the sub-five-year index to extend by 0.13 years. So that means that additional guild buying is going to come, right? And that's, uh, that, 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 that's quite key. This is, this is the pertinent part. And these index extensions, if we assume that around 30% of the market is roughly passive, can lead to around 9 million a basis point of support for guilt. So this is really a theme that we should have on the back of our hand because it, it is likely to happen in July 
and we don't want to be in a similar position like in March when most of the market just missed the index extension. So, and hence we had quite a sizable index move in March. <laughs> An exciting July in the UK then. So the, the other thing I wanted to ask is that in last week's episode, we talked about um, the one of the big events in the UK in July being the syndication. So do these index extensions have any implications for the syndication? Or do you have any kind of updated thoughts around that given what we spoke about last week? Yeah, and this is actually quite a good question. So what I think is that you have a market where um, there will be a clear need for duration and that's uh, that's gonna be around 9 million in basis point, as as it said. Now, interestingly, the, 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 the average maturity of the coupon payments coincides with the duration of the bond being issued. On top of that, if we have a six and a half to seven billion syndication, this will be enough to balance out any need for index tracking and, and, and coupon flows. Long story short, uh, we think that the, this syndication will have to be a fairly big syndication. And we think that six and a half to seven billion, at least, it could be even bigger. Uh, it will be quite an important liquidity event, given what we've been discussing with Google Money and index extension. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the potential is even for, 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 for more issues to come in. That part of the curve is cheap and closer to the event, we will look at potentially buying the sector relative to something else. So this is, we need to be, uh, to, to be on top of our toes, uh, but it definitely, there is definitely going to be technical buying. And this is why the story of just purely because of supply to assume that yields will go up, uh, is flawed because th- there is going to be some technical buying. Uh, and if you do get also some more fundamental buying, then I think that this could potentially uh, pose some headwinds. At the same time, create a very exciting environment for investors in the UK during July. <laughs> I didn't realize index extensions and coupon flows could be so exciting, but you've inspired me, Theo, and I'm looking forward to an exciting July. Giles told me it was all going to be quiet, but I'm just going to look at the UK in July. <laughs> all right, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining me. And just a reminder to our listeners that if you liked today's episode, please hit the like button to show your appreciation and click, click subscribe so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. And just a reminder, if you'd like to pose a question to any of our market specialists that we have on the podcast, please send us an email at bondcast at Thanks. Catch up next week.